Reading is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 46, to chapter 11, verse 25. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. 
Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we sung a moment ago, you've made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak. And we pray that graciously you would do that work now. We can't see without your help or hear truly, nor can I speak as I should without your help. Please work in us by your spirit. Thank you for your word, the scriptures, the sword of the spirit. May he wield it now for our good and blessing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, two questions I think this question, this passage rather, asks of us or raises for us. First question is, what do we see when we look at Jesus? And then secondly, what does Jesus see when he looks at at us. The first question, in one sense, lies behind the whole of Mark's gospel. Mark is showing us Jesus and asking us, what do you see? What do you see? And the irony in this passage is that the person who sees most clearly is a blind man, Bartimaeus. The second question is a searching one. What does Jesus see when he looks at us? We like that fig tree. Lots of foliage, lots of leaves, lots of signs of life. But no fruit. So is cursed. You might wonder what kind of fruit exactly is Jesus looking for when he looks at us. Well, Mark is going to show us that. It's, it's a fairly long section. We're doing rather large chunks of Mark as we, we work through his gospel. And I found that rather refreshing, rather than sort of just, as we break this up into three or four different episodes and draw some truth from each, to step back a bit and see it in a bigger perspective, to see the particular links and themes Mark might be using as he arranges his material. It just uh, helps me, not least, see something fresh here that I might not have noticed. I want us to see what Mark wants us to see, what God wants us to see in this passage. It's a, it's a key moment in Mark's gospel. Other gospel writers actually mention a, a few occasions where Jesus went up to Jerusalem. But in Mark's gospel, and the way he has selected and arranged his material, he hasn't been to Jerusalem at all. This is his first visit. He's been up in Galilee and other places till now. Jerusalem has been the place he's heading towards, his destination, where his great work is to be done. This is the focus, the climax of the story. And the heart of this passage is his entry now into Jerusalem. It's a big moment in the story. And yet, we'll see in a strange way, it's, it's a bit of an anticlimax too. 
in a rather surprising moment as he enters Jerusalem. The other surprise here in the passage is that whereas up to now Jesus has tended to urge people not to shout out about him being the Messiah. That was something that too easily would be misunderstood by people. Again and again, he's told people just to be quiet, be quiet about that. Well, suddenly here, we've got Bartimaeus shouting at the top of his voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it's not Jesus shutting him up. It's the crowd, actually, to no avail. And as Jesus makes his entrance into Jerusalem, he too makes a very deliberate public statement about who he is. John, in his gospel, tells of another visit Jesus has made earlier to Jerusalem when he slips in unnoticed, as it were. This time, none of that. Very clearly, very dramatically, Jesus announces his arrival. We'll come back to Bartimaeus at the end. There's there's much I think we're meant to learn, particularly from him, in this little section. But for now, let's just note the Bartimaeus story, particularly for how that sets the scene for what, as Mark introduces this little section, how it gives a context for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Bartimaeus, the blind man, is telling us what we're to see, what Mark wants us to see as we look at Jesus riding into the city. Bartimaeus was in Jericho. It was about a day's walk from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Essentially, it was a a steady climb. And it was when you reached the Mount of Olives, just on the edge of the city, that the pilgrims would have got their first glimpse of their destination, of the city itself. They'd looked down on what was so precious to each of them, not only because of all the history that was bound up with this place, but because of all that was bound up in terms of their faith, their hopes and dreams were centered on this place. And as they looked down on the city, I was surprised to learn that about a quarter of the area of the city was taken up with the temple courts. That, if you like, would have significantly caught their eye and filled their gaze. And no doubt each pilgrim, as they got to the top of the Mount of Olives, would have paused for a moment to take in the view. Jesus, it seems, too, also pauses for a time, and he issues these instructions to two of his disciples to go and get a donkey. And Mark spends quite a few verses, six verses actually, telling us about the donkey, the colt, he calls it, which needs to be, it's tied up, needs to be untied. And Six verses about a, a funny little detail. Mark clearly means us to notice this little detail. Um, it seems it's been prearranged in some way. It's, I think we have to assume that. It's been planned in advance, but I think we're to understand, yes, planned, and actually planned long, long in advance. This is something carefully prepared for. We meant to remember what the prophet Zechariah had said hundreds of years before. 
when speaking of the, the, the day of the coming of God's king, the coming of the kingdom of God, when God would save his people, when he would, as a shepherd, save his flock. And Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah speaks of this king as how his rule will extend to the very ends of the earth. He will proclaim peace to the nations. What a king. It's the king that actually God's people had been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, long before Zechariah. Actually, Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, back in Genesis, had spoken of a king, again, who would rule over the nations. And Jacob said, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. It was a funny little thing to tell us. And, and yet Mark keeps using that word of tying and untying when speaking of this cult. And I think there is a kind of deliberate echo he's giving us of, again, that promise back in Genesis. The king is coming. That's normal practice for the pilgrims. They may, some of them may have needed a donkey for some of the journey. But it was normal for the pilgrims for the last bit. As they entered the city, they would enter on foot. Jesus has been walking so far, as far as we know, but now for this last bit, very deliberately, he chooses to ride. It's not because he's tired, it's downhill from that point into the city. He's making a statement, a very deliberate public act, pointing to who he is. Surrounded by crowds, they're not crowds, I think, particularly that are coming out from the city of Jerusalem. These are the pilgrims that have been traveling with him, perhaps for many days. Pilgrims excited to see the city at last, full now of religious fervor. They'd have been singing psalms, including the psalm that they, they quote, actually. And caught up in all this atmosphere and excitement, some of them take off cloaks, spread them on the road, they cut branches and lay them down too. This is the red carpet treatment in, in Old Testament terms, or green carpet as it may well have been. This was how they welcomed a king in the Old Testament. Jehu, King Jehu had been welcomed in a similar way. And they're shouting, verse 9 of chapter 11, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. It's clear what Mark is wanting us to see as he describes this scene, isn't it? He's confirming everything that Bartimaeus has, had shouted out. Yes, indeed, this is the son of David. This is God's Promise king now, the one who will save his people. The shepherd saves his flock. 
the one who will rule over the nations, even the ends of the earth, will submit to him. Whether or not the crowds really saw all that is less clear. They quote from Psalm 118. That was one of the psalms that traditionally would have been sung by the pilgrims going up to, for the Passover. The psalm includes that cry, Hosanna. They're crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that's part of the psalm. It's sometimes used just as a greeting to other pilgrims at this time. The psalm speaks of boughs or branches in hand. They go up to the temple. So maybe the psalms in their mind, they're just caught up in this sort of festival enthusiasm. It's not quite clear how much they really saw. Yes, they, they speak of the coming kingdom of our father David. That is on their minds. God's great promises and hope for his people. But have they actually seen that Jesus is the son of David? Jesus is the king of that kingdom. Presumably a number of those people in the crowd shouting out these things were the same people who told Bartimaeus a few hours earlier to shut up about Jesus being the son of David. It is one thing to be able to sort of join in in a crowd, singing songs, shouting out things. We can do that easily in church, joining in the creeds, and we, we sing the songs, and yes, we, we, we go along with it. But do we really see? Do we really see what Bartimaeus saw, what Mark wants us to see? Have we truly seen that Jesus is God's king, the king of the whole world, all creation, whose rule is forever. The one before him one day, every knee will bow. We can call him king, but do we actually see him as our king day by day? It's one thing to say, Hosanna, save! That's what it means. It's another thing to say with Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Save me. There's a question Mark's asking us. What do we see when we look at Jesus? And one reason I think the crowds didn't really see all that their actions and words might have suggested is the anticlimax that comes in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You think, where, sorry, where, where were the crowds gone? It seems they just sort of dispersed off to where they're spending the night. It's a bit of an anticlimax of this great, dramatic entry into the city. He goes to the temple, he looks around a bit, he looks at his watch, notices it's a bit late. And back he goes, up the hill to, to, to Bethany. We're expecting a little bit more than that rather suggests that maybe they didn't really see all that Bartimaeus had actually seen. From verse 11, the focus changes not so much on what do we see when we look at Jesus, but what does he see when he looks at us? 
says in verse 11, Jesus looked around at everything. It's not Jesus doing the tourist thing. Wow, isn't the temple wonderful? But the sense is of inspecting. He is, he's looking carefully at what is there, appraising it. So that leads us to our second question. I think Mark is asking us here. What does Jesus see when he looks at us? The miracle of the, the cursing of the fig tree is the last one, last miracle that Mark includes in his gospel. And uniquely, strangely, it's a destructive one. Not bringing healing, bringing life, but bringing death. Verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it wasn't the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now some have thought that Jesus is acting a bit like a spoilt child, having a bit of a temper tantrum, being rather petulant. As if Mark is just wanting to show us another side of Jesus. He's actually quite like us when we haven't had our coffee in the morning. And we're a bit grumpy and out of sorts and we maybe you know, don't act as well as we might. What nonsense is that? Mark's included this miracle, surely, because it's significant. And he helps us see what its significance is. He does something he very often does in his gospel as he arranges his material. He uses a, a sandwich sort of format. So he mentions the fig tree, how Jesus cursed it in verses 13 and 14. And then in verses 20 and 21, we, we hear about the fig tree again and we discover it's, yes, it, indeed, it's, it's withered. That's the sandwich, the bread, if you like. What comes in the middle, the meat, is then what helps explain it. The one interprets the other. Mark wants us to see that this cursing of the fig tree was a prophetic act, if you like. In the Old Testament, the fig tree was a number of times used as a metaphor for Israel. This fig tree outwardly looks very, very healthy. Lots of green leaves, looks full of life. But when Jesus looks more closely, there's no fruit. In the same way as he came to look at the temple. Plenty of foliage. Apparently bursting with life. I mean, these were just a few days before the Passover festival. It would have been buzzing. Thousands of pilgrims. Lots of religious fervor. As I said, the temple area was a vast area. Apparently more than the size of 16 full-size football pitches, if we have that in our heads. Impressive, vast space. The, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that in AD 66, so 30-odd years after this, 255,000 lambs were slaughtered over the Passover festival. That's what was needed. Imagine all these pilgrims converging on the city. They didn't bring their lambs with them. They'd buy them when they got there. And other animals too, for other sacrifices they might make while they're in the city. And they would want to pay their annual 
temple tax. And they couldn't use their, their, their normal money, their, their Roman coins. That would have the head of the emperor on. That was not to be used. That was idolatrous, if you like. Different coinage had to be used. They've all got to change their money before they can pay their tax. So this vast place, full of stalls of animals, buying and selling, money changers, like a vast marketplace, busy, busting, and all in the service of worship of the living God. We talk about green leaves. If we looked at this place, we'd say, wow, the religious state of this place seems in very good nick. Look at all these people. Look at all this activity. But to Jesus, it's as deceptive as the fig tree. He doesn't see any fruit, the fruit that he's looking for. And the violence of his actions as he overturns the tables. Imagine coins going everywhere. People scrambling to try and pick up what they can quickly without anyone seeing. All the uh, obstructing, blocking all those trying to buy and sell. The violence of his actions mirrors the violence of his cursing of the fig tree. He says, verse 17... As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting there from two bits in the Old Testament. The first is a quotation from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 56, which describes how the temple should be and would be one day a place of welcome for those who might feel excluded, the foreigner, the eunuch, Anyone who wants to come to pray, to hear God's word, was to be welcomed and brought near. This vast area, 16 football pitches for the most part, that was their space for the nations to come and draw near. Those who were far off to come. And it was crowded out with uh, like a, a, a cattle market house of prayer for all nations, they become a place of profit for themselves. And then Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 7. That's part of a famous sermon that the prophet Jeremiah preached in the temple courts, denouncing what was happening in the temple, prophesying its doom and destruction. In a similar way, as Jesus stands in these temple courts, a place that seemed so impressive. As you looked around at all the noise and bustle and people and everything else, it seemed to be full of vibrant religious faith. And then Jesus says, it's like the fig tree. It's all foliage and no fruit. And he's going to say in, in chapter 13 that like the fig tree, it's going to face God's judgment. It's going to be destroyed. Now, I find it hard reading this passage in the light of events this week at General Synod not to think of the Church of England. It's a denomination with so much history, so much wealth, all those wonderful buildings, wonderful gifts and heritage, 
all those bishops parading in their robes and everything else, all the committees, the cabinet, synod, and so on, and not to think, what would Jesus see? What would Jesus say? Luke actually tells us that Jesus wept over Jerusalem this day as he rode in on the donkey. And surely he would weep, as many actually have wept this week over the Church of England. That's been in my thoughts, but actually I, I, I want us to park that. Because actually what I want us to think about is, is us. About us as a church, St. Ebbs. Us individually. What would Jesus see in us? Just foliage, lots of business and activity and ministries and so on. Lots of noise and numbers. Is that all? What does Jesus want to see in us? What kind of fruit would he be looking for? Temple. Jesus says, was to be a place of prayer, a place of welcome for the outsider, the one who is far off, a place of forgiveness. That's what all the sacrifices were for, about finding forgiveness. Well, what fruit exactly does Jesus want to see in us? And I think Mark helps us. Look on, verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Faith, faith. Faith is a thing that Bartimaeus was commended for at the end of the previous chapter. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight. Faith, faith that you see in Bartimaeus that, that recognized Jesus for who he is. Faith that sought mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Faith that prayed boldly. What do you want, to do for, want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Well, that's the kind of faith, the kind of fruit Jesus is wanting to see in us. He wants to see faith that prays, that prays boldly. So, verse 23, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. That kind of verses we might find difficult under how we can really take them on board and believe them. Sounds a bit like name it and claim it. Of course, we need to hear them in context. There's not least the context of the wider scriptures. The Bible has lots to say about what it means and looks like to pray in Jesus' name. But let's not miss the particular emphasis Mark is giving us here of what faith looks like. It is faith that is marked by bold Prayer. That's what Jesus is encouraging. It, it may be that um, when he speaks of um, asking this mountain um, be throw itself into the sea, it, it's just hyperbole. He's just saying, pray big, bold, impossible prayers. 
like Bartimaeus, who could have said, Jesus, actually, just if you've got a few spare change, that, that's just what I need at the moment, if you've got a few coppers. But he didn't ask that. What do you want me to do for you? I, I want to see, said Bartimaeus. Maybe that's the point, as though faith that moves mountain might just be a kind of proverbial expression for, for praying big prayers. It is striking that, that Jesus says, um, if anyone says to this mountain, it seems he's referring to the Mount of Olives. And I think that might be significant. In Zechariah, which is a sort of section of the Old Testament that I think very much might be in our minds in this um, bit of the story. Zechariah describes the coming of the kingdom of God. And he says the Mount of Olives will be split in two, rather like the Red Sea was parted, split in two, at the time of the Exodus. Maybe there's a kind of echo of that, like the Mount of Olives. Maybe it's a way of saying, praying for the coming of God's kingdom. As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. That essentially might be the sense, can I say, that is a massive prayer. To pray, to pray that this coming kingdom of our father David would indeed come in its fullness. But that's the kind of faith Jesus wants to see. Faith that believes those promises and, and prays from a believing heart and from a forgiving heart. So verse 25, final verse. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Implicitly there, it suggests that one of the things we ask for in this bold praying is for forgiveness. That's one of the things we should be asking for, God's forgiveness. Like Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That should mark our praying. But as well as asking for mercy, we should be showing mercy, Jesus says. Mercy that forgives others. Mercy that welcomes those who might well be excluded and feel they have no place with us. Ask from a believing heart and from a forgiving heart, Jesus says. That's the kind of fruit Jesus is wanting to see in us. There is lots of foliage in St. Ebb's church life. Lots of things going on and everything else. Foliage is a good thing in a plant. It does suggest life. There may be lots of leaves in our own spiritual walk. Good things, activity we can point to. But Jesus says, what about fruit? What fruit is there? Is there this kind of fruit? This kind of faith, more specifically? Faith that prays bold prayers like Bartimaeus. Lord, I want to see. Does that mark us? Faith that forgives and recognizes, well, because it recognizes our own need of forgiveness. Like Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. Above all, faith that recognizes Jesus for the king that he is. That's the kind of faith Mark is wanting us to have. 
like Bartimaeus, that recognizes Jesus and doesn't just honor him with our lips, but in our lives, like Bartimaeus, following Jesus along the road. May that fruit be seen more and more in us. Let me, let me pray. We do ask, Father, that by your grace, you would indeed make us more and more fruitful in this kind of way. Lots of ways we'd love to be fruitful as a church. But pray particularly that this fruit of faith, Bartimaeus-like faith, might indeed be seen more and more in us. For Jesus' sake.